0: what's up everybody welcome back to voices for the mausoleum um and welcome back to another episode of spooky saturday stories a series in which i read spooky stories and it goes out on a saturday (laughs) um yeah so i'm i'm believe it or not i am coming to an end with um my poster my uh, my submissions that people sent in for me to read things so I'm probably going to be posting soon about needing new shorts to read for this series. Um, If you're interested and I haven't read your stuff already on the podcast, um, definitely send me a DM. You can find me on Twitter um, at From Mausoleum, F-R-O-M-M-A-U-S-O-L-E-U-M. And um, I I read everything that's sent to me. It's not a submission. There's no harsh guidelines. Um, I do ask that it be in either a Word format um, or like a Google Drive format or like a PDF form. I had to convert some files and I'm not really familiar enough with technology (laughs) to do that. And I don't want to not be able to read stuff. So, um, preferably those formats. And, um, also I would prefer that it be under 4,000 words. Um, yeah, so I have four, one, two, three. Yeah, I have four authors and four shorts that I'm going to read. Um, and we're just going to jump into them. Um, and as always, um, if you guys are sending, sent me your stories and if you're thinking about sending me stuff in the future, just know that I really do appreciate it. It's super meaningful for me that you trust me to be able to do this on the channel. I know I say it all the time, but I, it really does mean a lot to me and I'm, I'm truly grateful. So thank you very much for trusting me to do your to read your stories. Uh, okay. So I'm going to do my first one is going to be by one I've actually by an author I've already done before. Um, I started doing multiples of the same author last week or not last week, two weeks ago. And um, I just wanted to go back and and redo this one because it's very short. Um, And this one is uh, called Let Me Tell You About Your Father and it's by Adam Hulse. Um, Adam is a buddy and um, a soon to be guest on the YouTube channel. I love Adam's writing, um, and he actually sent me this originally. At the time, I thought I was only going to do one per author, so, anyway, so I thought I would go back and read this one. Plus, again, this one is, um, this one's a little bit shorter. I did his short story, Leech, which was a phenomenal read and was on my first episode of Spooky Saturday Stories. If you haven't heard that, you should go check it out. Um, Adam Hulse also has a trilogy that's officially out-out. You can even get the third book now on. Kendall, why did that word evade me? Anyway, um so moving right along this is let me tell you about your father by adam Hulse. on the eve of christmas i was awoken by a ghostly sob my heart hammered a new tune leave him be i heard my aunt mild cry footsteps stumbled towards the bedroom where i had slept ever since my dear mother had passed two years ago the door creaked open like a cat yawning and i peered over my blankets at the silhouette that swayed there in the gloom I felt a strange sensation that I was looking at my father, whom I had only seen in the crumpled photograph I had inherited from my mother mother after the sickness had taken her. His ship had been lost to sea shortly before my birth. The man moved slightly so that the oil lamp that my aunt was carrying beat the shadows away to reveal my Uncle Charles. I blinked sleepily and inwardly cursed my foolishness. Of course the man looked similar to his own brother, but he was shorter and did not possess the striking blue eyes that my mother had told me about. "'Come with me, child,' Charles slurred. I was quick to throw my cold feet over the side of my bed as I knew my uncle had a habit of being quicker to lose his temper. Aunt Maude fused in the background, and when I tried to catch her eyes, she looked away. Uncle Charles held his hand out for me to take, which I did dutifully. His pinstripe suit was in disarray and his breath was hot with rum. For a moment on the landing, my uncle swayed so violently that it felt as though the whole house was teetering. I swear my feet left the rug that lay there. The movement was partnered with a somber creak of wood. Is this a dream? I fretted. Please, Charles, my aunt sobbed. He's just a child. With that, my uncle snatched the lamp from my aunt's hand and leaned close to her puffy face. I promise them, he hissed. Wait in our room if you must, but I will see this through. My mind raced as my aunt disappeared behind a slammed door and I descended the stairs with my uncle, We finally stopped in the moonlit hall and I jumped in fright as my bare feet hit an icy cold puddle of water. I could see that it was running from under the door that led to the parlor. A splash of the water hit me in the face and I tasted its salt. Come now, boy, my uncle grunted and pulled at my arm. Inexplicably, the room was now flooded with gray-looking water and ruin was all around. A man turned to watch our entrance. There were shapes that moved unnaturally under the cape of his naval uniform. I'm sorry, but I promised them such things. My uncle wept before hurrying out of the room. My father's striking blue eyes were dull now, but they took me in all the same. Yeah, so that is Let Me Tell You About Your Father by Adam Hulse. Okay, so moving into my next one. I'm going to be reading a story from get my ducks in a row here sorry um this is another uh, anthology that was sent to me this one is written by a guy named Aiden Merchant uh the name of the series is Damned Hunger as always i'll put all the links to these things below so you'll have access to them so you can find them um and i just kind of randomly picked up one out of it that he sent um just because i you know i just i picked one that i thought sounded cool um, so the one i'm going to be reading by aiden merchant is called swallowed man have you seen this kevin paused in the school hallway to throw an annoyed look over his shoulder his friend blaine was examining one of the many flyers posted along the stone walls kevin had already seen and examined it earlier this particular flyer was posted every 20 feet or so throughout the entire school they bore the first splash of color to greet him that morning Yeah, the first carnival in a while, right, he said. Moving to the side of the hall as students continued to run their shoulders into him to make a point. Blaine tore down the flyer, removing its corners and leaving them taped to the wall. I haven't been to one since we were like ten. He scanned the details and grinned. We could sneak in some beer. I bet the carnival is fun when you're drunk. Mick appeared beside them and snatched the flyer out of Blaine's hand. Or stoned. Aren't you on the wrong end of the school? Kevin asked him. Drama class isn't really monitored. I'm usually late or leave early. Mick spotted something on the flyer and grunted. Dude, they've got it all. Mr. Firth's old place? Kevin hadn't noticed that detail earlier. His stomach sank a little. The farm? Yeah, man. Remember, the bank owns it now. Whatever happened to Mr. Firth? Blaine asked, lounging his back against the wall and admiring the girls as they passed. Moved in with his daughter, Kevin said. Last I heard, my parents used to talk to him a lot when he still lived around here. That farm is wicked, Mick said, handing the flyer back to Blaine like haunted or some shit. Not this again, Blaine said, rolling his eyes. Remember when they used to do corn mazes there in the fall? Two years in a row, someone vanished. That's why they stopped doing it. Kevin bit his tongue as his friends argued the details. He'd experienced something surreal on Mr. Firth's farm over the summer with a guy he'd been seeing. They'd gone out into the field by the woods together to drink and make themselves a fire. Everything was going great until Kevin went to take a piss in the bushes. When he returned, James was gone, leaving behind his hat and glasses scattered several feet apart. There was no trace of him anywhere. A day later, his disappearance was all over the news. Kevin had never told anyone, the police included, that he'd been the last to see James. Mick shoved Blaine harder against the wall. It's true, dude. Even first wife went missing there. That's bullshit, Blaine said, jumping back a step as Mick swept a hand toward his face. She just took off because Mr. Firth was cheating on her. Kevin tried his best to ignore them by checking his watch. The bell was about to ring. I'm going to get to class. I'll see you guys later. He hurried off as the halls began to empty. After school, Kevin found his friends hanging outside his car, waiting and sneaking drags from their cigarettes. You get caught, you're expelled, he reminded them on approach. That's why you do it all sly-like, Mick said with a stupid grin. Kevin watched him take another drag and realized it was weed he was smoking. Or even better, you'll get arrested, he added. Relax, Kev. I won't bring it in your car. Where are we going? The carnival, Blaine said. Duh. It opens tonight, Mick said with a cough as he waved smoke away from his face. Through the weekend, first night is always the best, right? Kevin shrugged. The truth was, he didn't want to go. He'd avoided the farm ever since losing James. It gave him the creeps. You're going, aren't you? Blaine asked. My brother will get a beer to bring. I think he's going later in the weekend. We'll drink, play some games, eat some carny food, pick up a chick or two. Kevin cocked his eyebrow. Right. Man, you know what I mean. Get whatever tail you prefer. Kevin laughed and shook his head. You're an idiot. Both of you. Mick threw open his arms. What did I say? Kevin unlocked his car and climbed in his friends did the same a moment later after ditching their smokes they smelled horrible so he rolled down the windows he didn't need his parents smelling cigarettes in his car let alone weed what time does it open he asked them with some trepidation blaine tried to get comfortable in the back seat he was tall slender kid who had trouble in sedans seven i think what are we doing until then call of duty blaine trumpeted from the passenger seat all right calm down kevin said pushing his friend against the door take it down a notch We've got to hit my house, though, Mick announced, simultaneously drumming his hands against the back of Kevin's seat. I need different clothes and maybe a shower. Definitely a shower, Blaine joked. But seriously, my place, too, for the same reasons. And the beer. Can't forget that. Kevin sighed and reversed his car out of its assigned parking space. He wondered if he was crazy to be scared of the farm. After all, a carnival was going to be there. That meant a lot of people to keep an eye on one another. What was the worst that could happen? When it came time to leave, Kevin's stomach was upset. He tried coming up with an excuse to stay behind, but his friends wouldn't hear it. They practically dragged him to the car and said it was time to go. "'I've got the goods,' Blaine said as he slid into the passenger seat. His boot bag was resting in his feet with beer and weed stocked inside. His actual school things were dumped out of his house when he made the switch earlier. "'You know what rides will be there?' Mick asked from the back seat. Kevin reversed out of the driveway and turned into the main road. "'No clue, but don't carnivals usually have a Ferris wheel?' I hate those things, Blaine grumbled. I do too, Kevin said with a nod. I hate heights and all those chairs swing back and forth. Pussies, Mick sang. Still a bit high from the joint he'd smoke back at his house. You need to go on the Ferris wheel to spot the chicks from above. It's like science. Kevin and Blaine exchanged looks. You're a dumbass, Blaine laughed, turning in his seat to look back at Mick. How am I a dumbass? I'll get to look down all their shirts. It's a genius plan. He rubbed his hands together and grinned. Winning. Kevin rolled his eyes and took note of the heavy traffic ahead. The turning lane for the carnival was backed up almost a mile already. Shit. Mick unbuckled his seatbelt and squeezed his head between Kevin and Blaine for a better look. Damn, bro. The thing is just starting and there's already this many people waiting to get inside? Like you all said this morning, we haven't had a carnival around here in years, Kevin reminded him. Mick howled happily and sat back in his seat. Dude, there's going to be so many girls. We hit the jackpot. Kevin turned up the stereo to drown down his friend all the while breaking frequently as traffic slowly inched toward the farm. The carnival was packed with young bodies. Though there were parents in the mix, most of the faces Kevin saw he recognized from school. People were shoving through the crowd with friends, drinking specialty lemonades and shakes, eating funnel cakes and corn dogs, and playing games at the mini booths scattered across the field. Somewhere, they could smell manure, which meant a petting zoo was probably nearby. The farm didn't hadn't had animals on it, its own since the bank's collection. Blaine asked, Where to first? Do I hear motors? Mick asked. His eyes wide with excitement. Dude, do they have a racetrack here somewhere? Kevin listened, but it wasn't easy. There were many voices and sounds to sort through, but Mick was on to something. There was revving motors nearby. I think you're right. Let's find it. On the way through the masses, Kevin scanned the laughing and smiling faces. He wondered if any of them would find misery that night. This is exactly why I don't smoke, he reminded himself. He'd taken several hits from Mick's weed in the parking lot, and now he was feeling an intense paranoia. Though his anxiety had faded, making his stomach better, he now felt a certain dread that he was being watched and followed, that everyone at the carnival was in danger. There, Kevin stepped out of his dark thoughts and saw Mick pointing ahead. Between a portable stadium light and a booth challenging dart throwers for prizes, Kevin spotted the ticket holder. Beyond him, in the clearing against the woods where I last saw James, was a dirt track surrounded by sections of gates and small towers of bald tires. Mick hurried to the ticket holder and purchased a spot in the next race. There were already three others waiting to begin. The ticket holder had a screen posted over his shoulder with a countdown until the next race. There were four minutes remaining. As Mick was directed to his go-kart by another attendant, Blaine asked Kevin if he'd be racing. I only see one car left. You go with Mick. I'll take on the winner, Kevin replied. Blaine nodded and hurried to purchase the final available seat from the ticket holder. As his friends shuffled onto the track and prepared themselves, Kevin moved off to the side of the gate, the gating to watch. There were others lining the track to watch as well, most of them taking a snack break or waiting for someone on a ride. He saw a boy from his math class opposite him, some 200 feet away. He was partly hidden in the darkness due to the portable lighting not bathing that part of the track very well. But Kevin recognized him nonetheless. It was his crush... Darpin. They talked occasionally, but Kevin had yet to go out with him. Darpin was still very much in the closet with his family and friends and scared to join Kevin in public. Meeting his gaze, Darpin smiled and waved shyly at Kevin. At the starting line, an attendant began his announcement for the next race. Both boys turned away from one another to watch. Blaine was in a car on the far left. Mick was in the middle. Both wore ugly helmets and goggles. Kevin immediately wondered just how well they could see using those goggles at night with only scattered lights lighting their path. He imagined there would be a lot of crashing into the gates and stacked tires. A bullhorn was blown, and the drivers growled forward. Immediately, the racers were bumping and halting one another on the track. After a minute of frustrating cycle of grinding to a stop, they finally separated and picked up speed. As they took the second bend, Kevin looked for Darpin to see who he was cheering on, but Darpin was gone, as were the other spectators that had been on that side of the track. The gating there was completely dark now, stretching for 15 or 20 feet. A bull must have died, but shouldn't he have been able to still see their outlines? It certainly looked as if Darpin and the others had abandoned the spot. Kevin looked around the track to see if they had gone elsewhere, maybe closer to Kevin to talk, but he didn't spot Darpin anywhere near the sea of faces. Damn. When the race was over, Kevin met with Blaine and Mick by the ticket holder. That was pretty hard, Blaine grumbled as he neared. I couldn't see shit. Yeah, they need to move more of the lighting over here, Mick added. Which one have you won? I was ahead of him, Mick said. Why? Are we going to face off now? If you want. When the two of them returned to the ticket holder to purchase their spots, they found him hanging a brake sign. We've got to pause for a bit, the guy told him, stabbing a thumb over his shoulder. The lights on the far side went out. we got to fix that. Yeah, no kidding, Mick snorted. They joined back up with Blaine and told him the news. So, now what, he asked. The wheel, of course, Mick said, clapping his hands on their backs. Time to look for a nice pair of tits to take home. Blaine smacked Mick in the balls as they fought against the dart booth. Kevin considered the Ferris wheel's advantage. Maybe he'd be able to spot Darpen from there. At least that would make his torture worth it. Ten minutes later, they were in the air, overlooking the carnival. Mick was on a bench with someone he didn't know, but Kevin and Blaine were together. Don't swing us, Blaine pleaded. Trust me, I won't, Kevin said. Remember, I hate heights. Then why did you come? Kevin turned it back on him. Why did you? For the same reason Mick is here. Girls, Kevin shrugged and began to scan the people below them, during, doing his best not to shake the bench in the process. Well, Blaine asked, Huh? Why'd you come up here? Oh, I'm uh looking for someone. Blaine elbowed him a bit. Oh yeah? Who is it? I'm looking for Darpin from Calculus. I don't have that period with you. You may not know him. Blaine and Mick were in remedial classes, whereas Kevin was usually an AP. Oh, wait, the Indian kid? Isn't he like top of our class? I couldn't say, Kevin shrugged. He actually wasn't sure how well Darpin did in school, nor did he care. He was just drawn to Darpin in an unexplainable way. He took that to be a good sign, like it was fate. Isn't that him? Blaine asked, pointing to the dunking booth. Kevin followed his finger. He didn't see Darpin anywhere in the crowd. Where? By the trash can. Kevin shook his head. That's not him. Blaine shrugged. Oh, well, I tried. Kevin turned his face from side to side as the wheel began to move again. When they were on the low point of the rotation, he could more clearly see the faces of anyone facing their direction. He saw people he knew, but none of them were Darpin. He sighed. Relax, man. Were you supposed to meet him here or something? Blaine asked. No, I just happened to see him on the track. Why didn't you go talk to him then? He... He what? Disappeared? Kevin shuddered at the thought. Blaine nudged him. Dude, Sorry, he uh, was across the track, and I lost him at some point during the race. Oh, well, it's a crowded carnival, but you may find him later. Yeah. At the top of the wheel once more, Kevin decided to look in the direction of the track. He wondered if the lights had been fixed yet. Instead of a bright track, he saw only darkness at the far end of the field. The go-karts and gating were barely visible now, and there didn't appear to be a single person attending them anymore. Weird. What is, Blaine asked. Kevin pointed. They shut down the track, it looks like. Oh, shit. I'm glad I got to run. Kevin didn't like it. Something was off about the carnival's complete abandonment of a main attraction. When they got off the wheel, Kevin had to fight off his urge to return to the track and investigate the darkness. Instead, he suggested they get some food. We can take it back to the car, Mick said, and eat with our beer. Won't we have to pay to get back in, Blaine asked. Mick lifted his hand to show the stamp he received at the gate. As long as you didn't wash yours off, we're good. The guys got a funnel cake, some burgers, and soft pretzels. At the car, they all drank and smoked, except for Kevin. Though he had a beer, he only pretended to drink from it. He wanted to keep his head as clear as possible moving forward. He was already paranoid from the weed earlier. He didn't want to be tipping over and spinning as well. As Blaine and Mick talked about a girl they'd seen at the pretzel booth, Kevin stared off at the carnival barrier. There had to be a thousand people inside. Was that an exaggeration? He had no clue, but it was even more crowded than a football game at the school. The parking lot was crammed with vehicles, tightly packed side by side with little room to open their doors. Another row over, he saw several more teens drinking and getting rowdy. Someone near the barrier began to repeatedly yell a name. A little louder each time, Kevin reached for the source of the sound and spotted a young mother becoming frantic as her husband tailed closely behind. His head was whipping from side to side, his eyes wide and vigilant like a hawk's. Dylan? Dylan? Kevin cursed under his breath as he watched. Blaine turned to him. What's with you? Kevin pointed. I think they lost their kid. Mick took a big hit from his joint and began coughing loudly. Shit! Kevin was across the parking lot before he'd given it any thought. Blaine was not far behind. But Mick was still trying to hide their things back at the car, all the while coughing loudly. What's the plan? Blaine asked, out of breath. They showed their stamps at the gate and moved swiftly inside. Go ask them what Dylan looks like and where he was last seen, Kevin replied, moving quickly along the barrier to where he last saw the parents. They weren't easy to catch. As to be expected, the woman and her husband were rushing through the throngs of people and yelling at the top of their lungs. Kevin gave chase, but it took several minutes to finally get their attention. Once he had the mother actually listening to him, he asked about Dylan. He's six, wild dark hair, he's wearing a... wearing an avengers shirt and shorts she explained in rapid fire where was the last place you saw him how long ago kevin asked trying to hold her eyes as she looked around them frantically the husband was gone now probably off to his own somewhere it was by the petting zoo, maybe seven or eight minutes ago how can we reach you if we find him you have your phone on you After he'd gotten the mother's number, he and his friends split off in the direction of the petting zoo. Though the mother had looked there already, Kevin thought it possible the boy was simply in one of those pens with the animals, perhaps playing in his own little world. As Blaine and Mick went to the pens to search them, Kevin said he'd check the perimeter and neighboring booths. Alone, he hurried along the barn's exterior wall, occasionally calling Dylan's name. Sometimes he received looks from people nearby, but he ignored them. Hey, Dylan, come on out. Your parents are looking for you. As he turned another corner, movement caught his eye from the field. When he stopped to look, he realized he was positioned along the side of the go-kart track where he'd last seen Darpin. Nervously, he changed direction and moved into the field. He called for Dylan again and searched the darkness for the figure he thought he'd seen a moment before. Yo, Kev, where you at? Mick appeared along the side of the barn and spun around in place. Over here, Kevin called back, waving his friend over. Mick was at his side a moment later, out of breath and sweating. I didn't see the kid inside. Blaine is branching out from the zoo now. Yeah, okay. What are you doing out here by the track? I thought I saw someone running, but I guess I imagined it. Mick looked around them, but it was difficult to see much of anything in the darkness. What's that? Kevin followed his gaze to where a hat was lying in the grass. He moved over to it for a closer look. Holding it before his face, he realized it was the hat belonging to a carnival worker. It had their emblem on the front along with the word worker and big bold letters on the bill. Kevin thought it was poor design because the word wasn't really visible in that location without having the hat in your hands that's weird Mick said looking over Kevin's shoulder should we turn that in Kevin put it on his head instead actually this might help us get around don't you think Mick clapped his hands together good thinking a rumbling sound caused him to turn toward the woods what was that the rumble repeated it sounded closer Mick looked up at the night sky is it thunder Kevin shook his head it sounded like it came from the ground Mick moved forward about 10 yards in search of the source. I don't think so. I don't see anything. It happened so quickly that Kevin wasn't sure he'd actually seen it. The ground beneath Mick's feet suddenly surged up and over Mick like a slime covering and silencing him. Then just as swiftly, it sunk back down and leveled as if nothing ever happened. Mick was gone. The field had swallowed him whole. For several long seconds, seconds that felt like minutes, Kevin couldn't move. He was too stunned to react. It wasn't until Blaine came up behind him that he was startled back to reality. Dude, what are you jumping out of your skin for? Kevin spun around and stared at his friend. He tried to speak, but stuttered through a line of nonsense. Blaine looked at him with concern. You feeling okay? Kevin took the carnival hat off his head and stared at it for a moment. Then he thought about the day with James. James. Right here in this field, where all was left behind, was a hat and glasses. Things began to click into place, the ground coming up and snatching Mick out of thin air. Something was very wrong here, as he'd feared. There was no derelict in the woods waiting for trespassers to come near. That's what he'd always figured happened to James. But now he'd seen the truth, and how could he possibly explain it to Blaine? "'We have to get people out of here,' he said, grabbing his friend by the shoulders and guiding him toward the barn quickly. "'Hey, why are you pushing me?' "'Get back into the light.' Damn, dude. Okay, okay. Somewhere, there was a crashing sound. Accompanied by breaking glass, Kevin looked toward the ticket booth from the track where a light station there had sunk halfway into the ground at an angle. Its lamp fixture smashed against the roof of the booth. Kevin groaned. Oh, fuck. What happened? Blaine asked, confused. Whatever was underground was looking to kill the lights. But how could Kevin tell them that without sounding crazy? Let's find those parents, he said, instead moving toward the crowd. What about Mick? Kevin grabbed Blaine's wrist and pulled him along. Let's move. Come on. Look, man, I feel bad for those parents, too, but you're acting a little crazy about this kid, to be honest. Kevin dragged Blaine to a working light and stopped. Dylan's gone. This is about everyone else now. Blaine studied him for a moment. What the hell are you talking about? Someone screamed. Instinctually, Kevin looked in the direction of the track booth which had been thrown into darkness a minute earlier. No one was there, but a spilled drink lay in the grass. Though there was trash all over, Kevin knew better. Someone else had just been taken. Before he could explain the situation to Blaine, another light station went part of the way underground, shooting sparks against a tent for magic axe. A fire started, small and unnoticed. Kevin pointed to it and yelled. People nearby took notice and made room. Some got on their phones, probably to call for help. "'Dude, we've got to find Mick,' Blaine said, shaking Kevin's arm. "'Something weird is going on here. You have no idea.' "'Huh? Mick's gone. We need to clear the carnival,' Blaine laughed nervously. "'What the fuck has gotten into you, Kev? You're starting to freak me out. "'You're all white and shaking. Shit's breaking. There's a fire spreading over there. Tell me what's up.' "'The ground beneath their light, which stood directly behind Blaine, "'shot upward over the post and pulled it down hard.' The lamp's casing struck Blaine atop his head along the way, splitting open the back of his scalp and simultaneously spewing forth shards of glass. The force of its fall sent Blaine forward into Kevin's arms. The force knocked him backwards into the crowd. Someone immediately tripped over them and screamed. Kevin rolled Blaine off of him and got onto his knees. Blaine! Blaine! Nearby, the fire grew and people scattered, yelling for their friends and family. Kevin cursed and looked for help. Immediately, he saw the ground jump up and steal another victim in the spreading darkness. Nobody else seemed to notice. It was quickly becoming chaos by the magic tent, which now glowed brightly as employees and customers poured out of its entrance. Blaine wasn't responding. He was out cold and bleeding from the back of his head. Kevin knew they were on their own. Accepting this, he stood, grabbed Blaine from under his arms, and dragged him toward the nearest working light. It wasn't easy due to the distance and shoving of scared people. By the time they'd reached their destination, Kevin had seen three more people swallowed alive. Others had finally taken notice and were screaming. Get to the parking lot, someone yelled. Get off the ground, shouted another. People were on the Ferris wheel now, but not in its swinging benches. Instead, they were jumping onto the frame and trying to climb as high as possible. Kevin couldn't blame them now that he had seen the truth. They needed to get away from the fucking carnival. Kevin looked at his friend's unconscious frame and tried to decide the fastest way to move him. His eyes turned to the crowd fleeing around them. Finally, he spotted an abandoned food cart across the way that he could try putting to use. Shit, Blaine, I'm going to have to leave you for a second. Don't, uh, don't go anywhere. Kevin darted through the crowd, repeatedly crashing into people and falling over and over again. Finally, he caught the handle of the cart and cleared the surface of the stand as quickly as he could. He then turned it around and began rolling it through the crowd like a battering ram. When a clown on stilts appeared, he tried to swerve, but couldn't. The cart didn't have rotating wheels and tipped over. Kevin cursed and dropped to a knee as he lost balance with the cart. Above him, the clown tried to dodge his new obstacle, but struck the side of it anyway. He twirled in the air as his left leg, and its stilt, lifted. A woman's nose immediately exploded as the beam swiped across her face, sending a gush of blood into the air. The clown's legs then spread too far, causing his crotch to split. The man howled in pain and allowed himself to fall forward. Before he could hit the ground, Kevin watched it open like a mouth. The clown's body dropped inside the hole and is swiftly bent from head to heel as the crevice closed onto him. A second later, only his broken stilts remained. Kevin lifted the cart back onto its wheels and directed it over to Blaine's side. Once he had his friend lifted it onto its prep surface, he tried to angle the cart in the right direction. However, with Blaine's weight and his limbs hanging over each side, Kevin found that he couldn't move the wagon without causing it to tip. Damn it! Before he could try anything else, the ground leapt up and swallowed them. Kevin opened his eyes and groaned. They'd fallen into an underground tunnel of sorts. There were moaning bodies everywhere. Some weren't moving at all. The only light Kevin could see was the glow of a cell phone some distance away. A man was trying to call the police but couldn't get a signal. He cursed repeatedly and began to cry. Kevin picked himself up and reached into his back pocket for his own phone. When he took it out, he could feel its freshly curved shape. That couldn't be good. He tried the power button, but nothing happened. With a sigh, Kevin tossed his phone aside and began blinking in the darkness, willing his sight to adjust sooner than later. Once they had to some degree, he searched around his feet for blame. When he thought he'd found him, he took a knee. Hey man, wake up. Come on, wake up. He shook blaine's shoulder and lightly smacked his cheek wake up dude we need to get out of here the tunnel rumbled around them kevin placed his hand against the dirt floor and felt it vibrate against his fingertips was something coming or was the tunnel alive the man on his cell phone began to scream kevin looked over and saw him pounding his device against the wall the glow of its screen vanished a moment later then the man screamed some more someone nearby told him to shut up how many others were standing in this darkness with them Kevin wondered if their numbers would work in their favor. If only Blaine could open his eyes. Mick must be down here somewhere too, he realized then. Kevin jumped to his feet and shouted his friend's name. When there was no response, he tried again, all the while wondering how many tunnels existed. He and Blaine had been sucked down several hundred yards from the track where Mick had been taken. He could be just as far from them now or even further. The walls seemed to close in on everyone for a moment, but then they re-expanded. Had the tunnel just taken a breath? Hell. He looked at Blaine and promised him he'd return. Then he started making his way down the tunnel, occasionally tripping on bodies hidden in the darkness. Mick! The tunnel sucked in and expanded once more. A smell of rot followed heavy and foul. Kevin gagged and wondered if he'd eventually find Skeleton. Maybe even James. Beneath his feet, the vibrations continued. Mick! Mick! Kevin tripped on something and fell hard on his face. Groaning, he rolled over and reached down to his feet to feel around. There was someone there, still breathing. Kevin shook them, but not got nothing in return. Unhappily, he began to search the person for their phone. He didn't want to take it, but he needed a light. Finally, he found their device and activated his flashlight option. First, he examined the man at his feet. He could see blood all over his forehead. He probably had a concussion, much like Blaine. Sorry, man, but I've got to take this, Kevin said standing. With the phone's light as his guide, he turned back in the direction he'd been following. When the walls closed in once again for a breath, he noticed they seemed to reflect his new newfound light. Kevin paused and waited for the tunnel to expand once more. Once it had, he slowly approached the wall for a closer look. Was that water dripping down from the ceiling? Hesitantly, Kevin pressed his hand against the wall. Not only was the dirt warm and wet, but it was a bit sticky. The texture reminded him of dog drool, which suggested tunnel salivating kevin took a step backwards and cursed above him a hole opened, stretched upward into the carnival and dropped a woman at his feet before sealing once more kevin knelt beside her and asked if she was okay the woman seemed to be stunned but conscious though she didn't reply she curled herself into a ball and began to cry kevin tried helping her up but she refused to take his hand we need to get out of here he pleaded this tunnel is alive Finally, the woman met his gaze and began to scream hysterically. Kevin stumbled away from her in surprise. The woman continued to scream at him like an activated car alarm, her eyes wide and bloodshot. Kevin was about to leave her when the sky opened above them once more. This time, a booth was swallowed in part. It came down in pieces, landing atop the woman and silencing her. Kevin went to unbury her, but more holes opened up and down the tunnel. Things were falling all around them now, living and inanimate. Shit! Kevin began to run without a sense of where he was headed. Screens echoed throughout the tunnel, which began to breathe more frequently. The walls were salivating more as well, so much so that puddles were forming on the ground. Then something shot through Kevin's foot as he ran, causing him to fall. As he pulled forward his leg to check his foot, he felt an incredible pain fire up the limb. He showed the phone's light over the ground and saw a sharp point sticking out of the dirt about six inches high. It was jagged and pale. Kevin tried to stand, but found he couldn't put any weight on his injured foot. He tried hobbling around, but quickly spotted several more stalagmites, or were they teeth, along the path. Had they always been there? He couldn't remember seeing any before. He hopped over to the wall and leaned against its stickiness for support. He was breathing heavily now from the pain in his foot and even felt lightheaded. What was he going to do? Was there even anything he could do? He thought of gathering people to form a human ladder... the top but there was chaos everywhere he looked how much of the carnival was now down here with him to make matters worse another series of mouths opened in the sky more people and more tents and carts rained down around him someone crashed into kevin's shoulder from above causing him to crumble now he could hardly move at all the impact had broken something in him and he could hardly catch his breath The walls closed in again, pushing him and the others across the floor. Along the way, he was flipped onto a tooth, which impaled his side. Saliva coated him as he began to bleed to death. Why, he cried, unable to fight it any longer. There was too much pain coursing through his body. He couldn't even hear the surrounding screams anymore. There was only a high-pitched whine, as if his eardrums had been blown. A moment later, his head began to feel crushed by hands that weren't there, it occurred to Kevin that the pressure of the tunnel must have been changing drastically. His eyes began to throb. He couldn't think clearly. Couldn't even control his limbs. It was as if he was paralyzed. More teeth grew up from the floor. One lifted his head six inches, puncturing the nape of his neck and drawing blood. The phony ones held now lay several feet away with its light facing upward. Kevin could see the teeth above him now as well. They were growing everywhere, it seemed, in preparation of something to come. Though Kevin could no longer hear the sounds around him, Mick was screaming his name in the distance. The ground vibrated harder. Even the walls seemed to tremble with anticipation. Saliva dripped from the ceiling onto Kevin's bloody and broken form. Some fell into his mouth, and he began to choke. Sadly, he was still alive when the floor and ceiling began to meet repeatedly with vigorous force. They were all being devoured. So, that was Swallowed by Aiden Merchant takes us into our third story so my third one is a submission as well which is a story that is um, also part of an anthology Um, the anthology that this is a part of is a store is a book called the burning boy and other stories and this is by denver grinnell what in God's name do you call this swill? Marianne Fahi? slammed the coffee cup down, spilling black liquid onto the smooth mahogany surface of the executive boardroom table. C- coffee? How you like it? stammered the young woman standing before her. Marianne appraised her executive assistant with a withering look. She let the silence hang for a moment, allowing her victim to anticipate the coming storm of abuse. Marianne savored these moments. To her, they function as perverse forms of mindfulness. She took a breath, centered herself, then unleashed verbal hellfire on whomever happened to have pissed her off at that particular moment. Right now, it was Elena Lupi. The latest in a long line of EAs to be chewed up and spat back out into the bloody waters of unemployment by the great megalodon herself, Marianne Fahey. Elena was Romanian, and while she had a good understanding of English, her thick accent often complicated communications, but Marianne was really only concerned with whether or not Elena understood her and carried out every menial chore that she handed down to her. Elena was tall and gifted with an Eastern European beauty that, unsurprisingly, had bewitched more than a few of her co-workers. She cut a striking figure as she strode through the open plan office, often dressed in ornately patterned and colorful clothes that added to her exotic allure. Marianne dismissively referred to Elena as the gypsy, but never to her face. Elena's co-workers, male and female alike, were forever inviting her out for drinks and falling over each other to ingratiate themselves to her. Their desperate fawning attempts made Marianne chuckle. She could see right through Elena. There was definitely more to this lovely European princess than met the eye. Marianne suspected that her EA had a checkered past, possibly ties to criminal enterprises back in Europe. Sex work, probably. Drugs, no doubt. She wasn't sure exactly how she knew this. There was just a vibe, a hardness to Elena lurking beneath those catwalk-ready looks. Marianne had also caught glimpses of the small, rune-like tattoos on the inside of Elena's forearms, the ones she tried to keep hidden beneath long-sleeved shirts. At the end of the day, Elena just irked Marianne. From the pungent-looking herbal tea she made in the kitchen, she could make an elaborate herbal potion but not the most basic cup of coffee, to the guttural exclamation she would make when Marianne admonished her for her poor coffee-making skills. After a verbal scolding, there would be a quiet exclamation of harsh vowel sounds as Marianne turned to walk away. But it didn't face her one iota. She'd not maintained her position as managing director of the firm by getting upset every time a disgruntled, soon-to-be ex-employee aired their grievances publicly. The three-week break over Christmas had done wonders for Marianne's often volcanic stress levels. The sense of calm that settled over her in the downtime had initiated her first New Year's resolution since well before she started working in advertising. It was both a mantra and a resolution, something to be repeated throughout the day. Be better. No more wild tantrums. No throwing papers, coffee cups, and cutlery across the office. No slamming doors. No yelling and screaming at her workers when they screwed up. Be better. Marianne's friend, Helena, had recommended a meditation app for her to try. You need something other than the gym and red wine to ease your stress, Mayor. Helena had said over drinks at a fancy eatery on an Auckland waterfront. Tried it once. That hippie shit just doesn't work for me, she told her friend. I'm always thinking about the next ad or big client. Meditation can help you silence the noisy mind, Helen said with an almost comically wise and calm expression on her face. Marianne had to do all she could not to burst out laughing in her friend's face. Okay, I'll try it for you, my wise and spiritually enlightened friend, she teased. Oh, fuck off, Mayor. Do it for yourself, hun. Trust me. It works. Yes, Yoda. Try. I will. That night, Marianne downloaded the MindFlow app onto her phone and listened to the introductory session. At first, she giggled at the exaggeratedly slow voice of the woman on the app, who implored her to take three deep breaths and exhale slowly. But before long, Laura's mellifluous voice had worked its way inside her head, and the long gaps between instructions were filled by the equally soothing sound of Marianne's slow breathing. There were no nagging thoughts of work or the accompanying stress. There was just her, Marianne, alone in her own oddly calm head. Even the voice of the mysterious mindfulness coach melted into the ether after a while, becoming the voice of Marianne's subconscious, an internal instructor, a part of her, but also not. After that successful first session and overcome with a newfound sense of calm she hadn't felt in years, Marianne felt herself drawn back to the app multiple times a day flying through the introductory course in two days and even handing over her credit card details to pay for the intermediate course. By the end of the first week, she was hooked, a mindfulness addict. New possibilities presented themselves to her. She could introduce a mindfulness component to the workplace. She read articles that extolled the virtues of workplace mindfulness, which had been proven to increase employee satisfaction and therefore productivity. In the morning, she did a 10-minute meditation before rising for the day. After breakfast, she would ride her bike down to Point Chevalier Beach for a dip in the ocean, followed by a sunbathing session on the sand and another meditation after one of the longer, more advanced ones. On one occasion, she fell asleep in the sun and awoke later with a scalding sunburn to go with her sense of well-being. Marianne would finish the day with just one glass of wine and one more session, a let-go-of-the-day meditation that would see her drift off into blissful sleep, often with a satisfied smile on her face. By the time the summer break was over, Marianne felt like an entirely new person. Her stress headaches and the knots in her shoulders had disappeared, and she was drinking much less than the booze-filled previous year. Laura had become like a friend to her, an assuring voice of calm that helped make the summer break the most relaxing and nourishing holiday Marianne had had since she was a child, staying on Wahiki Island with her grandparents. When Marianne stepped out of the elevator onto level 12 and into the Plum Design offices on January the 18th, she sensed that invisible tidal wave of stress sweeping down the corridor towards her. She had expected it and was ready to confront it. She took a deep breath and on the exhale whispered, Be strong. Be nice. And it worked. For the first week at least. Somehow, Marianne had managed to hold her temper in check when Elena had hit reply all on an email to the rest of the company, thereby including the private correspondence where Marianne slagged off a designer who had been trying to negotiate a pay raise. Following that inauspicious start to the new year, there had been a number of small annoyances that nonetheless stoked the fires of Marianne's annoyance with Elena. Design briefs sent to the wrong people, clients being sent incorrect quotes, trivial mistakes, and if it had been any other employee, Marianne may have let it go and gotten on with the day. But it wasn't any other worker. It was that sneaky, untrustworthy gypsy that thought her shit didn't stink, but Marianne knew that it very much did stink. It was just hidden under the exotic scents of jasmine and sandalwood. When Elena came into the boardroom with Marianne's coffee and it was somehow lukewarm and burnt, the familiar fires of wrath began to burn, ready to scorch anyone unfortunate enough to be standing in the vicinity. It also didn't help that Elena used the hideous cup that she had gifted Marianne at the staff Christmas party, a mug with a picture of Tony Danza and the logo for the 1980s TV series, Who's the Boss?, printed on it. Marianne had taken three deep breaths and whispered, Be nice. Eliciting a confused look from Elena, But the simmering rage won out and the mantras and rational thoughts were swept away. Black, one sugar. How many times have I asked for you to make me that exact coffee in the last few months, Alina? How many? Let me do the maths for you. It's quite simple. One coffee when I arrive. One at 1045 a.m. One with lunch and the last one for the day around 3 p.m. So that's four coffees a day multiplied by the three or so months you've been working here. So that would come out at, well, let's see, 360-ish coffees. That's how many chances you've had to memorize that simple order. Black, one sugar. Do you need it tattooed on the insides of your bloody eyelids? Elena was speechless. Her lower lip quivered as if she was trying to decide whether to talk back or burst into tears. Before she could formulate a response, Marianne unleashed her next verbal assault. "'Besides, the coffee is just the straw that snapped the camel's vertebrae,' she sighed. "'I've given you so many chances, Elena, and you've continually disappointed me. So you're fired, obviously.' "'But, Mrs. Fahey, no buts, no ifs, no whats. Just goodbye.' La Revedere, take this ghastly cup with you, and for the last fucking time, it's Ms. Fahey. Marianne thrust the cup into Elena's shaking hands before swiveling her chair away, signaling that discussion was over. Elena turned and slowly walked towards the boardroom door. As her hand reached for the door handle, she paused, muttering under her breath, Umbrella Tivora Lua. Marianne cocked her head to one side. You say something? Elena turned to face her ex-boss one last time. A mask of pure hatred warped her previously fearful face. The corners of her mouth curled upwards into a wolf-like snarl. The shadows will take you, madam. Marianne ignored the threat and turned her attention back to her tablet. It wasn't the first time an aggrieved employee had threatened her, and it wouldn't be the last. She hadn't gotten as far as she had without having skin as thick as a rhino. Elena repeated the words, Umbrelle, Tivor, Louis. But when Marianne looked up again, the former employee had vanished. Marianne's thumb swiped and tapped at her phone. She couldn't get the MindFlow app open fast enough. Now back in her office with the door closed, she let her chair tilt backwards as Laura's soft voice began to speak. I want you to close your eyes, take three long breaths, and let the encompassing darkness of the shadows take you, soothe you. Marianne sat up right quickly, striking the desk with her knees and knocking her phone onto the floor. Shit. Did her goddamn phone just say the shadows will take you? No. She suspected it was her subconscious mind working through the day's events and its now relaxed state. Maybe it was a side effect of the mindfulness techniques she had been practicing, an involuntary way of addressing the issues inside her head instead of letting them build up, until they manifested in stress headaches, tight shoulders, and copious amounts of wine with dinner after work not to mention firing your fifth executive assistant in two years. Marianne groaned. She leaned forward in her chair and picked the phone up off the floor. Laura's voice continued with the meditation. Marianne allowed herself a chuckle at her jumpiness and resumed her position, leaning back into the chair. She contemplated restarting the meditation from the beginning. But what if she mentions the shadows again? She let Laura continue. Ten minutes later, the familiar sound of chimes rang, signaling the end of meditation. Marianne exhaled slowly. Be nice. Be strong. "'Where the shadows will take you.' "'Elena's voice hissed in her head this time, "'an echo of her parting words. "'Fuck!' Marianne slammed her hand down on her desk. "'All sense of calm was obliterated by the sinister threat. "'She looked out into the office "'where anxious-looking staff members "'pretended they hadn't heard her outburst. "'The familiar pangs of tension in her shoulders returned, "'and a dull headache crept into her skull. God damn that little gypsy bitch. "'Never had an employee gotten under her skin like that before.' Marianne had been screamed at, threatened, taken to court, everything short of actual physical violence, but those five words had burrowed their way into her subconscious like ferocious worms in a compost pile. She stood up and grabbed her jacket from the coat hook on the back of the door. A walk would do her good. Yes, some fresh air, maybe a proper coffee from the cafe down the street. Marianne strode across the office towards the elevator, doing her best to avoid eye contact with any of her employees, who, to be fair, were used to being ignored by her anyway, She felt their eyes on her back as she passed by, heard their excited whispers. Or did she? Elena's curse was one of paranoia. Marianne thought she heard her thickly accented voice come out of everyone else's mouths. She broke into a frantic jog, eager to get in the elevator and be whisked down and away from the claustrophobia of the office. She reached the lift and pushed the down button. Thankfully, the doors opened straight away, and Marianne stepped in. The door started to close when someone called out. Hold the lift, please. It was the wheedling voice of chief copy editor Miles Hoffman, a fastidious and painfully boring man who Marianne couldn't stand. His copy editing skills, though, were undeniable. She frantically hit the closed door button, but he managed to slide his briefcase into the lift just as the doors were closing. Marianne sighed and stepped to the back of the lift. She pretended to be writing a message in her phone in the hopes that Miles would see she was busy and take a hint. He did not take the hint. Marianne, hi, uh... I was hoping I might have a quick word with you. I'm on my way to lunch. I didn't follow you into the lift in case you thought that. He faltered. Marianne looked up from her phone and faked a smile. No, of course, Miles. Let's set up a time, shall we? Talk to Elena and... Damn it. She couldn't even fob him off with her useless assistant anymore. I'll tell you what. Email me and we'll make some time later in the week. Things are just chaotic right now. Miles smiled and stepped closer to her. No, yes, of course, I understand you're terribly busy. But it would only take a minute to go over my proposal for the fisheries account and the elevator lights flickered off, causing Marianne to let out a small scream. The lights came back on in seconds later, Miles laughed softly at her squeamish outburst. It's okay, Marianne. It's just these old lifts. The shadows will take you soon. They've been doing it more often recently. Marianne grabbed Miles by his suit jacket and shook him violently. What did you say to me? What did you fucking say? Miles' elaborate comb-over shook loose and flopped comically down to the side of his head, revealing the shiny dome he had been trying to hide. Marianne, please! I was just saying the lifts are getting old! Marianne exhaled, be nice, be strong, be better. Yes, of course, I'm so sorry, Miles. It's been a day. She made an attempt to straighten out his now-rumpled suit jacket. Miles quickly brushed the loose hair back over his exposed scalp. They rode the last few floors without speaking, both embarrassed and desperately wishing for the journey to be over. The elevator's chime dinged as they reached the ground floor, breaking the awkward silence. The doors opened and Marianne rushed out, leaving the flabbergasted copy editor behind. Marianne exited the building into the glaring but welcome sunlight. Never had the sound of traffic and the hubbub of people put her at ease like this. She thought about spending the rest of the afternoon working from the cafe, and she could have too if she'd brought her laptop with her. The least she could do was have a long lunch and a walk down the waterfront. What was the point of being the boss if you couldn't do whatever the hell you wanted to? Marianne reached Cafe Aurora and froze. There, sitting in the window, was a distraught Elena and another woman who appeared to be consoling her. Her hand was clasped over Elena's, who had removed her jacket and sat in a short-sleeved crimson blouse. Marianne noticed the tattoos on Elena's inside forearms. Elena's tearful eyes raised and stared at Marianne. A chill ran through her blood. That sinister smile returned to Elena's face for only a second and then disappeared, just as quickly as Elena returned her attention to her friend. Marianne turned and walked back the way she had come. Up ahead, Miles was coming down the street towards her. Shit! Marianne quickly ducked down an alleyway. The rancid smell of garbage and urine filled her nose, but even that was preferable to another conversation with Miles Hoffman. A large orange dumpster overflowing with rubbish provided ample cover for her annoying colleague. She watched as Miles passed the alleyway, his hand pressing down his comb over as he walked. There was a sudden rustling sound at the ground next to her. Great rats. Marianne wasn't overly squeamish when it came to rodents, but in her current agitated state, she could do without some running over her feet. She looked down, but instead of vermin, she saw a filth-covered hand reaching for her leg. Marianne jumped back from the man who lay there under a duvet made from a large cardboard box. Yellow eyes stared up at her expectantly from an unwashed face covered in a scaggly beard. The shadows will take you, the man's voice was cracked, dry, and filled with menace. Get away from me, Marianne turned and ran from the alley. At the end, she turned back. The man had risen to his feet and staggered towards her with his hands outstretched. Spare some change? Food? His voice was now pleading and desperate. I, I'm sorry, I I don't, Marianne fled the alley, almost colliding with a businessman. She headed back to the office where there could be no chance of running into Elena again. Marianne's eyes went to the clock, 3 p.m. She had a dull headache signifying her time-locked caffeine withdrawal. Instinctively, she pressed the intercom button, meaning to ask Elena for her coffee. Of course, there was no reply. Never mind, she'd make it herself. Black one sugar, piece of piss unless you're an imbecile, which Elena undoubtedly was. As she stood up, the lights in her office flickered on and off. When they settled, Marianne noticed a bulb over her desk seemed to have blown. There was now a dark patch of shadow covering her desk. Great. Perfect. Now my desk is covered by a bloody shadow. It sounded like Elena was in the office with her. Breathing down her neck, she could almost smell Elena's mix of cheap perfume and incense, with a shudder, Marianne stepped out into the brightly lit open plant office space, where, thankfully, no more shadows could be found. Marianne warily entered the staff kitchen, praying it would be empty of groveling, syncophantic employees. Keen for their 15 seconds with the big boss, hoping to pitch some inane idea for an ad campaign, the coast was clear. Approaching the coffee machine, a large and very expensive mealy, something drew her eye to the open cabinet on the wall. Elena's hideous Who's the Boss cup was the only one left on the shelf. God damn it, Marianne muttered. Her first instinct was to throw the mug in the trash, but with Elena now gone for good, what could it hurt? She'd get her caffeine fix, then Bennett. it. She placed the mug on the coffee machine, repeating the order out loud as she tapped it on the screen. Black one sugar pretty bloody simple. She watched the dark liquid pour down like a living shadow. Marianne flinched. A bright burst of laughter filled the air. Marianne spun around, but the kitchen remained empty. Elena's voice had infected her subconscious like a noxious weed. The machine finally finished its gurgling and spitting. The swirling black abyss in the cup drew her eyes in. It was hypnotic. Marianne's eyelids drooped as if made of lead the laughter now embedded and became a chorus of hissing whispers as if the kitchen was crawling with snakes. She blinked and snapped out of the trance. Raising the cup to her mouth, she inhaled the rich aroma. The rising steam curled around, forming patterns in the air. For a second, she thought she saw... No, that's absurd, but it looked like a face in the steam. Elena? She blinked. The face was gone. She sipped from the cup, savoring the hot liquid. The familiar bitterness offered momentary relief from her unease. It wasn't until she swallowed that she noticed another taste. Something metallic? What was it? The flavor grew in strength. Overpowering the taste of espresso, it reminded Marianne of the astringent tang of an overaged bottle of wine. The whispers started again, as if the whole office was audibly mocking her. The lights in the kitchen flickered, casting intermittent shadows across the room. Again, she heard Elena's voice. The shadows will take you, madam. Marianne turned and strode from the kitchen into the open-plan design room. A few people looked up at her and smiled, or looked away quickly. A common reaction. But she saw no evidence there had been any secret joke at her expense. Marianne entered her office and slumped heavily into her chair, exhaling loudly. Her head began to ache afresh. Her shoulders tightened into thick knots of stress. From habit, she took another sip of coffee, choked, and spat her mouthful across the room. It tasted like blood. She looked into the cup. Staring back at her from the rippling liquid was Elena's laughing, blood caked face. Marianne screamed. The cup slipped from her fingers, falling in slow motion towards the polished hardwood floor. Elena's grinning features erupted into an explosion of ceramic shards and blood. The hot liquid spattered over Marianne's shins. Now the laughter returned tenfold, a cackling storm that swarmed around her head like a halo of invisible flies. The lights started flashing on and off, plunging the office into darkness for seconds at a time. Each time the lights came back on, the puddle from the shattered coffee cup seemed to have grown, as if it were absorbing the dark somehow. The pool began to pulse like a breathing organism, then it moved, slithering towards Marion's feet like some hellish octopus. She rolled backwards in the chair, but it caught the edge of the desk, tipping her out into the floor, directly into the seething liquid. She tried to scream, but before one could escape, a black tendril whipped from the pool and entered her mouth. Marianne gagged as the liquid limb forced its way into her mouth. The tail of the ink-like creature disappeared down her throat as the demonic fluid flowed through her like a swollen river, filling her body. It was absorbed into her veins, her cells, her mind. Marianne's vision darkened into a midnight view of the world around her, gnarled fingers raked at the floor, stiffening into a hard obsidian claws. The rest of her limbs followed suit, becoming a rigid charcoal shell like that of a tree burnt in a forest fire. The laughter eased to a muffled trickle as her ears filled with a thickening liquid. Marianne saw Elena's face through the black, lips curved up in that hateful smile as she had muttered that final curse, her parting words to Marianne. Umbrella to Vorlua, the shadows will take you. That was... Black, One Sugar by Denver Grinnell. Which takes us to our final story for Spooky Saturday Stories. And the fourth story um, is a story called Sell By Date, which is written by Owen Coff. When he emailed me some um, of his short stories to consider to read, this was one that he said he really enjoyed, but he hadn't found, like, a really good home for it yet. So I thought it was a good choice to go with this one. Mostly out of curiosity, but then because, you know, you'll see. Sell by Date by Owen Koff. Trains dropped off the last of the season stock two nights ago. This is to be the final season. Once this stock is processed, there will exist no larynx to produce such words as spring or summer. Time will come to be marked according to minds quite unlike the previous. Pins 12 foot high lined with electrified razor wire keep them contained in shivering, huddling clutches of dozens. In most, one corner has been designated to separate the unresponsive and another for eliminations. Such is the mark of civilization. The razor wire is a new addition. Neither cattle nor hogs had the capacity to anticipate what was to be their lot. The facility was modified to better suit its new function. While spread throughout the yards there are hundreds of pens, most stand empty with open gates that lead to silent roads. It may be suitable to distinguish the two groups according to the lines in which they will be processed. Let them be honored with the names of their forebears. They are hogs and they are cattle. Hogs are rushed up the chutes, narrow gangways which give a satisfying wooden thunk, as flat feet pound the boards. Their eyes are wild with terror, and some slip on the effluent that slides unevenly down and pulls on the bends and the chukans, which once slowed the swine and now unwit the disconsolate mass. The first sight of the line for the hogs is the Great Wheel. It looks more formidable than it is. To look upon it, one would think the mere act of forward movement would mean total evisceration. In fact, it is nothing more than a convenient way of moving the stock through processing on chains. Each arrival brings on a near identical response. The mouth opens in awe that its wild is of its destiny were real, that it isn't a joke, which of course, in a way, it actually is. As the arrival heaves in for breath and perhaps tries to run to the right or left, it sees a team have been awaiting it. With a minimum of force, four figures brightly step forward and attach a shackle to one ankle. They are, of course, not real persons, but rather created persons, and so their faces match their former function. Two are identical assembly line units that were called upon to interact with engineers, So at the sight of a face, both always smile and gesture with their hands in complete disinterested synchronicity. The third is a waterworks model that was made to work entirely in the dark underground and expected to have essentially zero interaction with humans. Its movements are stilted to occur in the most energy-efficient way rather than with the pleasing grace of other models, and in place of a face, it has a flat white plastic covering. It can see, though not with eyes. The fourth is, inevitably due to their ubiquity, a pleasure model. The face is arresting in its androgynous beauty and makes expressions, calming the arrivals through a system of facial symmetry indeed more complex even than a biological's. And while the bulge in its blood-splattered shorts induces unpredictable responses in the stock, the range of responses are almost always characterized by hesitation. Once the shackle is attached, the stock proceed along the line in a short way. There is really no other choice, and should they fail to, the chain takes them anyway, if a little harder. In most cases, the chain lifts them screaming, hanging upside down by one foot with the other limbs flailing uselessly. See, above that, in a sense, it is a joke. Some wear shoes, others don't. From time to time, even high heels can be observed. Attire, even the wearers would admit, as being incongruous to the environs. Long boots are deftly cut away from the leg to be chained. The rest of the journey is spent on this chain. Should they resist the chain, however, it grows taut, snaps back, and cracks their head against the concrete floor. This is due to mechanics and not, as you might imagine, contempt. Of course, what is pulled up from the floor by the chain is a person. But as the journey proceeds, it ceases to be. It is unpersoned. By the time the first to begin the voyage has been lifted and pulled by the line round a corner and out of sight of the doors open again, and the next voyager is greeted by the smiles of the assembly line units and jerking movements of the sewer works model, and on and on creating a line of jolting, jerking, screeching pre-processed material. The first true stage of processing is the slitting of the throats. That is done with a short, narrow blade. As the process swings by a waiting worker, a Japanese hotel receptionist unit with her hair tied in a bun reaches out and slashes across the neck. In most cases, this succeeds and the blood is allowed to drain into a tank for later use. The worker, however, being a created person and given a very specific task typically makes only a single stroke and should this fail to reach its intended target, as it might if the processee should jolt suddenly, the stock continues down the line wriggling. This is a particularly disturbing sight for those farther back in the line as they can observe the dangling as the line waits for the blood to drain out. Regardless, all stock is dipped after the bloodletting. This involves the chain quickly dropping into a cauldron of boiling water for less than six seconds and almost invariably fails to kill any that make it past the Japanese lady. Note here, the hotel receptionist unit was not actually produced in Japan, but possesses phenotypical physical attributes associated with biologicals from that region. Any wondering why it ought to be so would be well advised to contact the manufacturer. Next, the hog's bristles are removed. Naturally, persons do not have bristles. A workaround was established, however, by the created persons in that same tools. Electric scrapers could be used to remove clothing and hair. Hogskin, being more robust than that of humans, this is inclined to result in minor abrasions, so extra care is taken during this process to ensure a pristine product. The following step is most unfortunate for any who have persisted in full consciousness to this point. A traffic police officer in full uniform, high visibility vest and hat included, decapitates the carcasses and drops the head carefully down a chute to the basement for further processing. Fortunately, almost no stock successfully avoid the traffic officer's powerful saw. Next, the chest cavity is open and entrails are removed by a sultry-looking jazz singer unit, previously available at discount prices for weddings and dress and evening wear accordingly, who passes the time singing as she works. Lacking conventional lungs, the physicality of the work does nothing to inhibit her voice. On the entire line, she is the only created person to vocalize. Bodies are washed and scraps and excess fat are collected for boiling in order to separate the fat for the production of luxury brand cosmetic lines. The persons entering through the chutes and undergoing the processing of the plant resemble more hogs than do those following the cattle processes resemble cattle. Hogs are intelligent. Hogs possess an ugly dignity. Hogs are pink. Hogs squeal and shriek. Cattle are lumbering and, if you could ask them, too fatalistic to plead. The cattle pens open their doors direct into a killing floor. Arrivals are brought in one to a line. Looking right and left from the centermost line, it is impossible to see how many lines there are, perhaps to smell or taste or feel in the bones, but not to see. Created persons concern themselves not at all with rest nor personal hygiene except that required to perform a task where grooming is necessity to maintain la bella figura, and in those cases they never fail to appear exactly as they mean to. In the plant, with self-driven tasking, most do not maintain appearances. It is therefore unsettling when entering the killing floor that units not yet working watch in motionless abject disinterest while covered head to foot in viscera and waist. Here is a postman, mailbag hanging empty over his shoulder, a blade in his fist, his right side completely drenched in blood, his left splattered. Here is a beautician... Her manicure swallowed up by the muck left on her fingers from disemboweling stock for hours on end. The first step, stunning to the animal, is as with the hogs skipped. The cattle are rolled from their pen to the killing floor one at a time before they can find their feet. They are shackled. In one line, a casino card dealer is shackling them. His close shaven face still remarkably clean, his trousers look pressed, and the vest still has the authentic polyester sheen. The primacy of his task keeping him clean, but for fine mist of blood. Passing the dealer, the cattle are jerked up by the foot where, like the hogs, their throats are cut by a tennis coach still wearing wristbands. And while it is true created persons do not sweat, the little idiosyncrasy the designers added in making the coach wipe away the sweat of exertion has the benefit of removing blood from the forehead. Granted, the coach's position is to slit throats, but in the end, more blood is removed from the face than is introduced. Once the unpersoned material has ceased twitching and is drained of the blood, which flows through gates into guttering on the floor, it is decapitated as in the hog line the heads are removed for use elsewhere. Cattle are not dipped in boiling water as the hogs are. The head being removed, the path diverges further. A created person splits open the skin in the car dealer's line. This is done by a real estate agent wearing a skirt down to the knee and sensible shoes with a slight lift. The cut starts at the clavicle and continues to the perineum. In order to facilitate this, the body is lowered on its chain into a shallow pit from which it is swiftly raised. When humans ran the plant, vermin were not tolerated. However, created persons ignore the rats that fall into these pits and are unable to escape. Rats, for their part, seem happier under the reign of the created persons from whom, for unknown reasons, they do not hide. Perhaps they can hear the absence of blood in their veins. Once the estate agent has made her cut, a waiter and barista in an unmatching uniforms of rival corporations approach and seize the skin from either side and peel. Both have long since lost their factory standard fingernails. Finally, the beautician mentioned above plunges both arms into the body cavity up to beyond the elbows and rips slithering snake-like innards from the processae. This being done to the last arrival, a great silence falls over the killing floor, and all is stillness. Nothing is wasted, however. The flesh is tested for impurities and adulterants, and if all is found to be copacetic, the meat is sliced and processed, salted, smoked, and cured, turned into sausages and steaks to be delivered to empty supermarkets no longer frequented by persons. Here, in well-lit refrigerated displays, it waits its sell-by date, and not being sold, it is destroyed. That was sell by date, by Owen Kof. This is a long one. <laughs> I uh, I love it though. I, I I just I'm always trying to at least make it to an hour, and um, this is gonna be I'm pretty sure past that, even with all the mess ups that I'm gonna edit out, and you'll never know we're there. Um, yeah, so those are my four stories. Um, I uh, I as always I will put the author information. Um, in the description below for this episode. Um, hope you guys are liking these. I I don't, the podcast doesn't allow like comments, but feel free to go to my Twitter and tell me what you think if you like these, if you don't care, if you want something different, do you want more horror bestie breakdown? Do you want more conversations with other people? Um, I'm always open to feedback and hearing what, you know, listeners and watchers are enjoying and not enjoying. Um, it's valuable feedback, so um yeah so if you have a story that's under 4,000 words and you can send to me in a pdf format and it's a horror related short um feel free to send it my way I'm happy to read it on um on another episode of um spooky Saturday stories you can find me on twitter at from mausoleum and uh, that's all I have for this one so we'll see you guys next week is Uh, next Saturday is Horror Bestie Breakdown with Tasha and I discussing They Live in the Gray, a Shudder original movie that just came out like a couple weeks ago. Um, so you want to circle back and check that one out. Shudder originals, man, they very rarely let me down. Very rarely. So hopefully you'll uh, stop by, by and check out our thoughts on that one. Um, that's all I have for this one. Hope you guys enjoy the rest of your weekend. Um, and, uh, we'll talk very soon.